Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's not that there isn't grief and sorrow at the death of my siblings when they happened one after another over many years. But, you know, I probably don't spend a lot of time thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die too. They all did and I will. Yeah, I do think that's the case as far as I know. But I'm not grappling. I feel like I'm not grappling. If I start to grapple, I'll probably know it. That was Lois Smith. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Lois Smith has been acting for the better part of 70 years, first in high school, then some in college, and then, ultimately, the motion pictures. She found success early on in what would later become landmark pieces of cinema. East of Eden, Five Easy Pieces, Next Stop Greenwich Village, Fatal Attraction. The great roles just kept on coming. In the 21st century, you've seen her in movies like Minority Report, Hollywood land, please give, the nice guys. But it's this year in which Smith is having a moment. She has a pretty great supporting turn in Lady Bird as the titular character's teacher, nun, and guidance counselor of sorts. Most notably, though, she delivers a powerful performance in Marjorie Prime, in which she plays a grandmother grappling with the loss of her husband in a rather unusual way. Hello, how are you? Walter, there is someone in my mind 
I'm trying to figure out who it is. It's just me. It's just Walter. I still don't like it. What? Dad's been dead for 15 years. Does it bother you that your mother's talking to a computer program or that a computer program is pretending to be your dad? Well, you're a good Walter, either way. Thank you. Creeps me out. It's how she remembers him. I don't want to get you in trouble. You learn I like that. She's nicer to that thing than she is to me. It's your father that she's being nicer to. Are you jealous? Your poor old mother was born in the 20th century. Try to be patient with me. I'm not that far gone. Lois is now 87 years old, although you probably won't be able to tell who's older in the conversation between the two of us. She's full of life, probably because she has so much of it still to live. I'll admit that in the booking of this podcast, there's no group I like to sit down with more than those above the age of 75 or 80. Their stories are full of wisdom, their personal histories written with clarity. On the flip side, having Lois on inspires a different question. How the hell does one attempt to tell someone's 87-year-long life story in 60 minutes? I guess the answer is in the podcast, but it's an impossible task. A fool's errand, and I'm the fool. Maybe one day, if I make it to 87, I'll be more comfortable with that designation. Until then, here is Lois Smith. Lois Smith. How are you? Well, thank you. This is um, the most quiet situation I've found in New York since being here. It's wonderful. Nine o'clock in the morning in the lobby of a little theater. Yeah, that's about to do a pretty significant retrospective of your work. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did not plan to ask you about this, but now that we're here, what do you make of all that's been happening in your life in the last few months. I mean, the tour of Marjorie Prime and Lady Bird and now this retrospective. How are it, you feeling? It's been in some sometimes overwhelming. It's really, it is very interesting in a way. I've been working for a long time, 60-some years as an actor, and uh, with a kind of, when you look at it from uh, backwards at it, it seems, with a kind of continuity. It's not that I was constantly working, but, you know, it's been a long go. And there's no, I've never done anything like this kind of promotion. <laughs> so it's the first experience of that. I think the first real taste of it was at Sundance when Marjorie Prime opened at Sundance mm-hmm. last, uh, nearly a year ago. Yeah, last January, January, Last right? January. It's almost been a year. Um, and that for those few days... Uh, and we were all there, the cast of Marjorie Prime, Michael Amoreda, the director, and John Hammond, Gina Davis, and Tim Robbins. And we were herded through uh, um, a very snowy, blizzardy street of snow from address to address down Main Street, as were the casts and companies of, of all, or many, many of the movies that were there. Mm. So it's a 
it's a curious, relentless in and out of interviews, sometimes by yourself, sometimes together, as fast as you can be moved through uh, photographs. Right. Um, and it's all in the interest of having your movie paid attention to. Well, I, that is a, a valuable reason. So what's happened to me in these last weeks has been another further uh, chapter in that uh, bringing attention to this movie, which was a very inexpensive movie to make, a mm. very low-budget movie without the kind of money to have it out there with big ads and and big uh, uh, appearances in big theaters. Mm. And so we really would like it to be seen. And the distribution company which bought it to distribute it is, again, a small company, but they are working on it. And so yeah. we are, and so we are campaigning mm-hmm. and, uh, it has involved enormous amounts of travel close together. You know, one city. Uh, last week, I quickly went from, uh, well, first from Toronto to Key West and then back to Chicago. The Toronto part was a job I had, a, a television job in the middle of all of this. But much of it has been just simply interview to interview, uh, booked by my keepers, as I call them, the huh. publicists. Wonderful Adam Kirsch, who was really remarkable at how... Uh, how careful and uh, thorough mm. he does his job. So that's what I've been doing. And what do I make of it? I said to my daughter one day, interesting to do this maybe once in my life. I'm, I'm an old person, you know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, it's probably not a way to live full time. <laughs> I, I think it would be exhausting. Oh, it is. It yes, it is. You know, you're talking about chapters and this certainly feels like a new one for you yes I, I was wondering since we do have an hour and this is probably not like you probably don't have many hours with people in a one-on-one isolated thing and you live here right i do i live in new york so things are a little slower and it's a little more calm now i wanted to start in topeka kansas in the first chapter of all this mm. what is your earliest childhood memory of of living there. You were born and raised in 1930. Uh, Yes. I was recently asked in a, hmm, what turned out to be a bit unpleasant, this question, what's your first memory? (laughs) So. uh, The question was unpleasant or the memory? No, 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 no. The, uh, The result of this interview was somewhat unpleasant. So it makes me hesitate when you ask me that. The first thing I remember, but that's very hard to know, and the, I think maybe the first one I remember and what my answer to that question was is, is ear pain, throwing myself out of my mother's arms because of ear pain in, from one set of arms to another. Mm. That's a vivid early memory. But basically, that's not the story of my of my uh, beginnings. I re- I was the youngest of six children. Mm. Uh, you had two sisters and three brothers. That's right. The boys came first, and then the three girls, and the rest of them were roughly two years apart. Was that the order in which it happened? That's the order in which it happened. How strange is that? Yeah. Well, it, I guess, but probably there are all kinds of configurations, and that was ours. Yeah. And then there was a gap of. 
five years between my nearest sister and myself. So I was the youngest in a double way. I was the youngest and also I was really younger than than the others were to each other. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the family I grew up in. I, I feel quite fortunate having grown up in a... It, I have a sense of it being a stable, dependable family. You do? I do. And that I think in now in my advanced age, I feel that quality being very much part of me. Yeah. The stability. Yes. I, I sense that as well. I've only known you for seven minutes, but... Um, <laughs> well, we had an earlier meeting, you said. <laughs> yes, but I think I had a couple drinks at that meeting. <laughs> but I made you laugh. You made me laugh, which is why we're all here. But I, I will note that I, I've, you have a calmness and stability to you that um, I hope to one day mimic or something. Mm. But it it strikes me that you felt that way pretty early on in your life. I'm sure I felt lots of different ways, but now looking back at it, I do have what I just told you, the sense of it coming from there. Mm. Did you feel stability? You moved from Kansas to Seattle at age 11. Yes. Well, for two years, we moved from Topeka to St. Joseph, Missouri, which was about 90 miles away. So for a couple of years, I lived in, had a move. Mm -hmm. And then um, my father very much wanted to move to the West Coast. He had traveled on vacations to the West Coast. He worked at the AT&T, the telephone company, company for a very long time. And um, that happened when I was, I guess, about 10. We moved from St. Joseph, Missouri to Seattle. Mm. And that, of course, was a huge change for all of us. By then... um, Cross country. Cross country, yes. We lived in the middle of the country, and I had never been very far East or west, or north or south, really. (laughs) (laughs) I'd been to Iowa, and uh, where I had relatives, but I hadn't been uh, much of a traveler at that point. By then, two of my brothers were no longer living at home, so the move was the three sisters and one brother moving moving together. When you're a teenager in Seattle, finding yourself or doing whatever teenagers do at 13, 14, 15 in high school. Were you thinking about performing at that point? or oh. I always, um, I performed first when I was very small with my father who put plays on in the church. And uh, it seems to me clearly that's how the activity and caring about it began. I was really a little child and I, I love going with my father to rehearsals. I would learn the lines, and you know, so so occasionally I was in a play that way. But I just did what there was to do at school. When I I happened to, to go to a high school in Seattle that had a drama department, and so we did more plays than just an ordinary ordinary English department with mm-hmm. like one play a year. Right, and so there I began to actually do more of it. My dearest friend was in a similar situation, loved acting too. And uh, and I suppose that the move towards realizing that this was something I might do more than just because I enjoyed it now and then is when I finished high school, I was just summoned to the office one day and given a little 
scholarship to the University of Washington. I lived there, and it was a state school, and it was extremely inexpensive. I mean, but unbeknownst to me, I'm, I was probably recommended by my teachers, I suppose. I was given a little scholarship. Um, so you were a good student. I was a good student, yes, I was. So I, I started to go to the University of Washington, which had a notable drama department at that point. And uh, I think that's in a certain way where training started. I had uh, real class acting classes, a, a sense of training in the drama. And, and there were two theaters on campus that ran all the time and performed six nights a week mm-hmm. for six weeks cast with the students. But at the school, you don't graduate, right? You do, I think, a year or two? I didn't graduate. I went for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, I was reading your, your biography of sorts, and it dawned on me that when I was 18, I left my family and moved to San Francisco. That's a really lovely sound. <laughs> <laughs> and... I did what most people do when they leave home, if they get the privilege of leaving home, which is be excited about the future and also a little scared about what's to come. And I remember feeling alone in college, even though I was around new people and and, and happy to be around them. Um, So you left your family in order to go to college in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, they they just... They didn't live there, which, which is fine, which is what I wanted. Right. But it dawned on me in reading through your bio that the idea of getting married at 18, at that age for me, it would be, I would, it wouldn't, for me, it would not work out. Mm-hmm. I think I'd know myself. Mm-hmm. It would be an unmitigated disaster. And I'm fascinated by how you make that work. You know, I think... It does seem such a strange thing now. My youngest grandchild is 18. And I think it probably seems very, un, you know, truly an unusual thing for her to think about that now. I remember talking about it around the family table, my daughter's uh, at birthdays <laughs> during this past year. And my, uh, her, her grandfather, my ex-husband, whom we married at 18, was there too. And we talked a bit about those days. Um, that was Wesley. That was Wesley, yes, Wesley Smith. I came from people who, it was not unusual then, um, who got married very early. And uh, so it didn't feel like it would feel now to my granddaughter, for instance. Um, it seemed very much part of a pre-existing pattern. Yes, it did. Uh, now... In a certain way, I was very different from the pattern because I wanted to go to college, which yeah. was not... Let's see, two of my three brothers went to college. Neither of my sisters had any wish to do so. So you were the only woman. And they married and, and had families and, you know. So I was already different. One time my mother said to me in my teenage years, this is something extremely private, but I guess I feel like saying it. Why are you so different from the rest of us? And I remember feeling uh, shocked. What a thing to say. Am I? 
and at the same time aware that, yes, I am. That's one of those little <clears throat> family relational things that has stuck in my mind. That I was, yes, I was different. I was going to college. I was When I was in college, I really began to seriously want to be an actor beyond the moment, you know. Yeah. Um, Were you okay with being different? I have a feeling it was both very much okay with me and you spoke about being scared and lonely. Maybe maybe that's why an early marriage and continuing what was a tradition of a way to live, getting married and having a, a, a mate and a companion at that point, it didn't seem strange. Uh, I was probably an earlier, we were probably an earlier marriage among our close group of friends than many, but not so much. That is, a little group of friends from high school, the students of a very dear English teacher that we all shared, ended up making a little nucleus of a, of a group in my first, at my very end of my high school and beginning of my college years. That little group intermarried as much as was possible, as it turned out. <laughs> so, so culturally, there was a change happening, but I was still in the uh, in the early marriage. It did not seem strange. At eighteen, you get married. At twenty, your father passes away, and it's around that time I think you stop going to school. Is that do I have the timeline yes, right? Yes. Um, there was a lot of flux in the country. We talked about... Both globally and personally. That's right. We talked about going to India, just because that's what a lot of people were doing. You and Wesley. And, and our friends, yes. And I think part of the rationale of leaving school, I was... I was always working as well as going to school at some job or another. I started working when I was 13. That was uh, during World War II, and it was probably more possible to get a job as a 13-year-old than it would have been uh, at another time. So I began this. It was a good sense for me of making money. It started then, you know, uh, that I made my own money a little bit and continue to do so. So the fact that we were now a, a married couple and independent making our own living did not seem some great... For one thing, it wasn't so expensive to live. <laughs> then, uh, well, that's a bit off the subject. We, yes, there was talk of maybe what we should be doing is going to India and learning a lot, which is, you know, the sense of the arrival from the East of many ideas and ways of living was happening. This did not happen to me or my friends. Right. Um, I mean, what I find so fascinating is that in my head, I, I wonder about the idea of losing a parent at 20 seems incredibly difficult. And I think the next year in 1951, you leave where you essentially came of age with your husband and you both decide 
it's time for a change. And that change is here in New York City. Well, it was more complicated than that. My husband, we were both at school at the University of Washington. He was a, a classics major and he was going to go on to graduate school. And it ended up that the graduate school he was going to was Harvard. So we were moving east. It was not so simple. At one point, I left and came to New York by myself for a couple of months, and then I went back to Seattle to my marriage, and then the following summer, we moved east together. Uh-huh. But uh, I have a very specific question about this. That summer that you two moved together, and you leave many of the people that you knew... You take a plane? No. We drove across you country drive. in a very small, old, 60-horse Ford car, which boiled over, so we had to drive at night. <laughs> I've made you laugh again. I love that. <laughs> oh, what are you thinking on that drive? You're 21. You're like starting a new life. You're in your second, third year of marriage. Your father's just passed. You want to act. I guess you're driving cross-country, your car is having problems. It was a, it was a most interesting trip. We, uh, we rather, it was a very hot summer, and we rather quickly learned that the car couldn't do it. It would boil over in the daytime. So <laughs> I remember it as one, one of the first stops, we drove south, and we stopped at uh, an aunt and uncle of mine. He was a car mechanic, mm-hmm. and he helped us with the car. And from that's when we, you know, sort of turned left and really started going east in the southern part of the country. We would stop in the evening, late afternoon, at a sometimes friends' relations. One of the stops was, I think it was Cripple Creek, Colorado, where some of the my classmates from the University of Washington were in a stock company which had some sort of an association with, or at least they was, they, several of them ended up there. And I remember that we, we pulled in, visited with them, climbed into their beds. They were off, you know, slept during the day, got up in the evening, visited them again and took off in our car. And this happened many times because we really could only drive at night when the car wouldn't boil. Mm. How were you feeling about the future at that point? Um, well, we were in, in, I don't remember being particularly fearful. Now this may be the advantage of having a husband, a mate. Uh, you know, I was not alone. He also was off to an adventure to graduate school at Harvard. So we lived for the next, what, three years, something like that, back and forth between New York and, and Cambridge. Um, His future was Fairly more set than yours, I think. I mean, you had well, school the, to go to. Well, in the sense that he knew what he was doing every day. And and my life of being an actor was just beginning where you really don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Usually not only from day to day, but from year to year, etc. It's uh, it's uh, not it's not stable or, you know, known ahead of time. Mm. You know. What was your day to day like in the early days there in 51, 52? Well, we got to New York. We did have friends there, part of the original close group around uh, my early days in 
college. I had a job working at night, sorting checks at the Chase Bank. And my husband got, this was in the summertime before he started school in the fall. He had a job, a daytime job as a file clerk somewhere. So, and I began, you know, to, I had been there, as I said, a couple of months by myself the previous year. Mm-hmm. So I... You were, you were a little familiar. A little familiar. Probably one of the most important things was a meeting that I had right then. On this trip across the country, I had with me the script of a, of a teacher at the University of Washington who had, uh, was an acquaintance of John Van Druten, the playwright, and had given to me his play, which I had done a reading of with him to deliver to Van Druten, therefore their making a meeting with him happen. Mm. Um, you were a mail carrier. I was a mail carrier. And as soon as we got a little bit settled in a fourth floor walk up on 51st and 9th Avenue, I believe, <laughs> um, with our two jobs, I made the call to this office to make this appointment and was told that it was probably a Thursday or Friday that, oh, yes, thank you. Mr. Van Druten is away for the weekend. But in the meantime, this trip had taken some weeks and the settling down. He no longer, uh, uh, the author of this play, Grant Redford, the professor at, in Seattle, has rewritten the play and sent a, a later version. And thank you, we don't need to see it. And so that was that. And what happened next, I think, is one of the loveliest stories. I have some lovely stories in my life. We lived in a as I say, in a month-to-month apartment building, no, almost nobody in the world knew where we were. When Grant Redford, who had written this play, learned what had happened, he, did, he got a hold of my mother, which he, whom he did not know, but it, almost, I say, nobody knew where we were, and let, let them know. And I got a, a telegram in this fourth-floor walk-up with no kitchen, from Mr. Van Druten saying, uh, I came back and I learned what had happened, and I'm so sorry, and please call me and make an appointment. So, so I did go and have lunch with Mr. Van Druten and argued about this play. <laughs> I was quite shy still then, but I found it in me to have a pounding-the-table argument about this play. Not that shy then. As we walked away from the restaurant, he began to offer me introductions to some agents and continued to do that. So you're 22, 23 here. I was 20. Yeah, must have been 22. Is that right? I think so. Or about to be 22. So that was actually, those were helpful. My early, nothing happened like overnight, but one of the agents they introduced me to was an agent at a large agency and when my first job was a Broadway play called Time Out for Ginger. And uh, the, the reason I got that call to audition for it was because I think in this large agency, they called in every young girl who could play a teenager. There were three teenage g- girls in the play. That was pretty directly related to Mr. Van Druden's uh, recommendation. Mm. Uh, another of his recommendations was for a small agency the William McCaffrey Agency, where I, who became my agent for many years in my earliest, earliest, so they were certainly important moments that came out of this, this extremely gracious, out of the ordinary 
looking me up. Did it feel extremely gracious or out of the ordinary back then? Yes. You remember being in your home and getting the telegram and thinking, wow, what? This is quite phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is perhaps strange to ask now, 60, 70 years removed. Why do you think it happened? Some people are gracious and generous. I've often thought I'm not as gracious and generous as that, but it, <laughs> I certainly benefited from that, yeah. It's, it is interesting when you ask me that. I guess that is what I feel. In, the, in times where sometimes it seems as though honesty, generosity, careful concern, threatening to leave our way of life altogether. It is nice to remember that they're not gone and that they exist in people. And with good luck and blessing, one can become one of those people. Do you think you've become one of those people? Oh, I told you at the beginning I feel grateful for the stability I started out with so it gives me maybe a leg up. There are ways in which I am not, certainly not the worst specimen I know, but I'm also aware of, of I was just thinking yesterday. There'll be a headline in this interview. There'll be. Not the worst specimen I know. <laughs> there, are, there are times when I think, oh boy, the pettiness that will creep into my mind, into the way I think about things. I think, oh, look what you're thinking. Look at that. Look how petty you can be. So, no, I don't think I have, a, I have not achieved <laughs> whatever it is you call it. Mm. It's what you called it. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I can't speak f- for your life. I don't know you that long. But you seem generous. You seem here, at least in this conversation. Well, I'm very fortunate. This is pretty easy, you know. I'm warm and comfortable. I am being acclaimed and feted. I'm having this this long, comfortable interview with you in this quiet, pleasant place. So it's uh, so the pressures on me are good ones, not difficult ones. Mm. You're in New York. You're working. Um, you have some work on TV series, right, and TV films. Mm-hmm. Is there a moment you remember in those days uh, as an actress thinking to yourself, okay, I'm doing this now. I'm away from home and people don't exactly know where I am, but I'm making a life for myself. Do you remember a performance or, or some project where that hit you, where that realization dawned on you? I just seemed to me that 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 I and we gradually slipped into it. The being in the in a uh, unknown place, not n- nobody knowing where I was, that didn't last very long. Um, People found out. I well, we moved. I mean, we actually we left that place in the middle of the night at the end of our month. My husband was going to start school. Your moved. place on Fifty First. Yeah, we just 
We just left. I mean, we paid the first month's rent and we wanted to get out of there. I love, again, <laughs> this is just like the car driving there in the middle of the night is when you're making moves. You're quick in the middle of the night. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, rented an apartment in New York. Wesley was moving. We had gone up to Cambridge and found, a, he had found a little apartment or a room in an apartment and uh, close to school. And I rented a very inexpensive apartment on Twenty uh, Seventh Street. In the street doesn't exist anymore. It's a number quite a number of years ago. It it's what is now a large uh, um, what do they call the ladies' garment workers big. Blouse? It's a series of buildings of oh. you know I think subsidized housing some mm. kind, but at the time it was a I think four or five floor not very good shape apartment building and I rented very cheaply because you were by yourself yes but I found a, a friend from Seattle was also looking for an apartment and we we lived there together for a number of years her name was Eulalie Noble also an actress she was going to the neighborhood playhouse mm. and we lived there together and it was large it had five rooms it was seedy but you know cheap and comfortable yeah um, CD but five rooms. Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't feel like I was. Uh, I I just was doing what I did, and uh, the the great thing was that quite quickly that summer, I got my first job, which was a job which actually paid my way. It what, was what summer is this? Uh, Fifty two. That was my first job, which was a, a Broadway play called Time Out for Ginger. So I remember when I got it, I got it from one of the connections through the Van Druten uh, uh, recommendation, and I auditioned for it and got the part and had the job. Wesley had was in Cambridge. I remember feeling that day, I don't have anybody to tell. Oh. I remember walking around the city thinking, hey, hmm. I'm in a play. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Do a play. Do you care that I'm in a play? Do you care? <laughs> None of you care. Okay, great. <laughs> Wonderful. No, it wasn't like that. It was just, you know. <laughs> That's my reaction. That was a lonely moment, but it wasn't an unhappy lonely moment. It was, yes. you know, yeah. Sometimes those happen. <laughs> yeah. Happy and alone. Yeah. Uh, in 1955, November 21st. Uh, you know more than I do. A copy of Time magazine comes out. And you are on this cover. Ah, yes. Of Time magazine. I think it's you and four other women, maybe three other women. Four other, yeah. You're in New York at this time. Um, this is how I imagine your day. And again, I'm a fool, so please call fool a fool. <laughs> but in my head, I'm like, oh, it's like the morning of the 21st or the 20th. Maybe they come out earlier than their publishing date, whatever. And you're walking down the street. And at a newsstand, because in the 50s they still had newsstands, uh, there's a copy of Time magazine, and you see yourself on there, and I don't know your response, but I'd like to think you're happy and satisfied by it. You, 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 your story of my life is not accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you something? That is why you're here. <laughs> Uh, well, first of all, um, as I remember, yes, the five of us were all actresses appearing that season in plays. It was uh, Susan Strasberg, Diane Chilento, Jane Mansfield, uh, Judy 
Davis, I think I did not know her at all, not that I knew all of these people. And so each of us had a, uh, there was a little bit about us inside the magazine as well. So I'd been interviewed. He'd been uh, in, uh, yes, there's the picture. The photographer, as a matter of fact, oh, this wonderful, famous photographer who worked for life came to Princeton. By then we lived in Princeton, New Jersey, and Wesley was teaching at Princeton. Um, Although now I now realize the biggest flaw in my story is that it's Life Magazine, not Time Magazine. Life Magazine. I didn't even get that right. Ah. So it, it's not <laughs> as though this was some how did that happen thing. And the inside pages were, were interesting because that was really about us. There were pictures of Wesley and me at home, you know, uh, at Princeton. So, well, oh. It's interesting. I, you know, in a way, I don't think I remember much about how previous to this, my dearest friend, whom I mentioned once, her name was Arvella, Arvella Holman, when we were in school together, and she got married. This was in high school? Yes, in high school. The, you were too junior interested. High, junior high and yeah. high. We you were very, like very dear, close friends, my closest friend. She married even earlier than I did. While she was pregnant, she got German measles and she had triplets, two of whom were seriously deaf because of the German measles. Our lives took very different paths. I moved across the country. Uh, we never totally lost touch with each other, but then much, much later in our lives, we came together again and mm -hmm. became again close friends. The reason I bring her up is that I believe maybe it was the year before, she had appeared in Life magazine with a big story about the, the three triplets, having the triplets at age 18 or 19. So it's funny, isn't it? That I think that was maybe in my mind. It was, it's not that it wasn't a big thing, but in a way it wasn't a big thing. It wasn't, it wasn't the matter of daily life. When we speak about that, it makes me think of what you started talking about, what's happening to me now with all this promoting, campaigning, interviewing, screenings, Q&As, all the stuff that goes with this. It's, it's what I've been doing, but in a certain way, it's not just what I do. Hmm. It's what I do right now. As a matter of fact, it's not what I do right now very much because this week, after a few weeks of intense travel and booking, et cetera, et cetera, I said, I have to be at home. I, there are things I can't do if I'm running around like this. Things like reading the scripts I have to read. Things like memorizing my lines. Things like thinking. So this week... Things like thinking. I've, yes, right. So I've been reading and thinking about plays and reading plays. That's what this week has been about, and it was so much fun. Well, I think that's what most of your life has been about. <laughs> yes, right. I mean, it all goes together, but... This this juxtaposition hasn't been so vivid before. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's so, a certain amount of of uh, uh, attention one needs to have if you're going to advance in a career as an actor, because attention brings more opportunities to work. So you you'll get more work, you'll get better work. This is sort of the way it is, and uh, yeah, so. In the 60s and 70s, and even in the 80s, was it difficult to find consistent work? 
um, as a woman. Yes, it seems to movies. me it's always been difficult. And in my case, in my fortunate case, it continued to be possible. I mean, I did keep working, not all the time. Right. I was, I, I was lucky to start out in my first years in New York with both a play. Within the first couple of years, I had a play on Broadway, a lead in a, a television drama. There were many television dramas in the 50s. Uh, that is, every week there would be a, a new play yeah. on about eight or ten different, uh, different anthology shows. And then I, and my first film, which was East of Eden. So within those first couple of years, I had begun on all of those media, and it made a huge difference. I think it made it possible for me to make a living as an actor, which I have done since my first job, mm-hmm. which is a wonderful and astonishing. Happen, yeah. I was looking through the IMDb last night, as one does, yeah, and I kept thinking to myself, "Wow, she has truly been." In the in the truest term, uh, truest sense of the term, a working actress mm. for the better part of fifty, sixty mm. years. Yep, it's true. Not and and it's and I say that there's specificity to it because there are plenty of people who act who have a break that is like a series or a franchise and like that pays for their life. Uh-huh. We have a tendency to avoid the economics right. of this business. But it struck me that you really did have to keep working. Yes. And you started doing so at 13. I did. Yes. Not as an actor, but yeah. 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 Did you ever get tired? Did I ever get tired? I'm sure I did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't, I guess now it feels to me like, I don't think one gets tired so much when you're young. (laughs) (laughs) I think I I get tired more uh, now. I'm young and feel tired often. Yes, you do? You feel tired all the time. Not all the time, but I I also No, it's true. Of course, I know that I felt tired. And now I feel tired, but I also have extremely good stamina. Mm. And I've been leaving, even this week when when I'm not traveling in city to city and make... I have a very difficult schedule. I mean, the readings I'm doing, one on top of another. I mean, this is like hours. I'm not talking about an audition. I'm talking about deeply spending five hours at a time on a little folding metal chair, mm. just delving into a play and what it means with a cast, a director, an author, etc. And that's a, a lot of fun. But it makes you tired, mm. you know. Maybe it's not a question of stamina, but rather... A question of feeling worn down by a difficult business. I don't know if you felt that. Yes, I have felt it, though I think I probably have been fortunate enough not to feel it as keenly as many of my fellows. I, I think that's true. Because I have, I have kept working. I haven't been helplessly out of work a lot. You know? yeah. I don't feel like you've been helpless a lot. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe you're right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you tweeted something the other day, which is not a sentence I thought I'd say on this show today. What? You tweeted just the sentences that you tweeted. I, I, I know you're new to Twitter, and Twitter yes, is I am. nonsense, really. But it's, it's it has its perks. But you said um, life is hectic right now. I talk about myself too much. Learn lines in airports instead of at home. Yes. 
Is there a part of you that doesn't like talking about yourself? I think what that came out of and what has come out of, of this uh, an awful lot of interviews and uh, where that's the point, you know, is to, uh, if you do it over and over and over and over. I remember saying, if I talk about myself in this movie anymore, it's going to impair my mental health. <laughs> it, it, you just, you know, it, and then, and then you like, stop for a day or rest and it's okay again, you know, which of course that kind of recovery is true of many kinds of things, but it's, uh, yeah, it becomes, I don't know, you know, I'm not talking to you right after I've had six interviews in a row all about how was it to work on Marjorie Prime and uh, when did you do this or that? So I'm feeling relatively fresh this morning. <laughs> you, you feel as much, too. Hmm. There's a retrospective here, as we mentioned in the beginning, happening uh, when this comes out, about a week after this episode comes out. When you're looking back at your career, and obviously it's still ongoing, has it shaped out the way you wanted it to? It's not, I don't feel I probably ever thought, okay, this is what I want it to be. I don't think I did that. Or, but I suppose the answer is yes, because I feel fortunate and grateful that, that I it kept on working and getting to do what I love to do. And, and there are ways in which I get better at it, and that's a nice feeling. Although each time it's like a new beginning, that's true as well. I have felt that... I've had the right amount of, um, what do you call it, acclaim or, or celebrity, because it's really wonderful to have someone... And New York is a good city for this. People don't always just come up and say, Oh! I've seen you, can I have my picture taken with you? You know, there is some of that. But but I do get a lot, these days especially. I've worked a lot on the stage in recent years with really interesting, wonderful parts. I get a lot of people coming to me that I don't know very often and saying, your work means a lot to me. This is not just a colleague that needs to say that because it's opening night and you're supposed to say something nice. <laughs> These, well, that there's something wonderful about that. Now, not that there isn't something wonderful about the acclaim I'm getting where people say, your years of work have meant something. That's really great. And I haven't had the kind of attention as a, an actor, which means that people, you know, would chase me down the street and, you know, and, uh, you know, you have to hide because you're too well known. So it seems to me, well, that was a pretty nice balance of, uh, attentions and lack of attentions as an actor. I don't think I answered your question, but that's what came to mind. I think you did. Good. Do you have any regrets? Oh Lord, don't, doesn't everybody have regrets? <laughs> you know, there are some people who say, no, I don't have regrets. And I wonder uh, what's going on with you. Well, I think the ideal 
of not having regrets, that, that I understand. It's a, but it's know. an ideal. I think we mm-hmm. leave it at an ideal. I don't know. I don't even know if it is an ideal. Goodness, yes, I have regrets. I have regrets of my ungenerousness with my, when, you know, unkindness, that kind of thing. Regrets of, you know, like, oh, oh, damn it, I didn't get that part. I don't, I'm not really thinking about that. The ungenerousness you've brought up twice now. Well, it's no big deal. I maybe I sometimes feel that that there is a self involvement with the kind of work I do, mm-hmm. and that I, I guess I've accepted that. Mm. Ideally, it's not just self involvement because the best work comes when it's. It's a very collaborative thing, the theater. So when it's a joint effort, that's an, another kind of uh, way to live. Mm. Mm. It's tough when you're thinking about the idea of not being generous in the context of art, which I believe has sort of an inherent generosity to it. Yes. You do something, it leaves you, it is then put on a screen or it's on a stage, and it is no longer yours. Right. So maybe it takes self-involvement to create it. I often think about this. I'm in the middle of um, casting. I'm going to shoot my first short film in January. And the story is part autobiographical, and it has all the traits of some minor maybe significant narcissism. <laughs> yeah. But at a certain point, it dawns on me that um, the story that is very much mine and could continue just being mine will in time not be. Yes, yes. So how do we reconcile that? <laughs> well, the, the thing that I, that I feel and have and sometimes say is, I feel it mostly in the theater, I guess, that we bring ourselves, individual selves, but we come together and we work on something together. As mm. you're going to do, you're going to have a lot of collaborators in this film you make, though it may be so essentially yours. And you you build this thing. And then in the theater, then you're on stage with your audience in front of you and you give it away. <laughs> Well, that's what you're going to do. I mean, you're going to give it away. As you mm-hmm. mentioned, it, as you brought it up, you put it on screen. That's one of the ways of doing it. Yeah. I guess that's okay. Or I think it's okay. Maybe it's not even okay. It just is. There's not like this a choice. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's like, is it okay to get up and eat breakfast? Well, yeah, if you've got some breakfast, I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> um. This is strange to share this with you. But one of my earliest movie memories is of a film called Minority Report. Mm. You probably remember this. You were in it. I do indeed. I play uh, the person who was involved in creating the... the, uh, Right. You were the oracle of sorts. Yes. I was partly involved in creating these 
now I can't remember the word. What are they called? Not uh, the replicants. Pro, uh, uh, no, that's not it that's either. That's Blade Runner. Uh, um, oh, well, neither of us can remember the word, but the the, the creatures who are con- are kept in this artificial way and, and they are the way of knowing uh, yes. in advance what's going to happen. I remember a, all this. Yeah. I remember your part. Well, now. I, yes. And I mean, it, the, it, the scene takes place in a, in a greenhouse. Right. And Tom Cruise, who is escaping, yes. comes in, it and breaks you're, you're into cutting, my lab. You're cutting the, the flowers, I, I'm right? Ta- I'm taking care of the, of the greenhouse. Right. And at one point it, I talk about uh, how everybody, everything, uh, uh, survival is the point, And I'm clutching a plant. And when I open my hand, it's, cut into my hand. Yeah. Blood. Blood, yeah. I do remember this very yeah. vividly. Yeah. There are a handful of scenes in that movie, especially that greenhouse scene, now that you bring it up, that are so vivid. as early memories of watching film. I know you're looking at me like, wow, that's strange. I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> no, not, not, that's not what I think at all. That, that monologue you have about survival and death, I knew there was a reason I brought it up. The thing about your work now, uh, or rather now, I guess I'm thinking in the 2000s, many parts, you so beautifully capture the characters you're playing, the intensity of those people. And in this case, in Minority Report's case, how ephemeral this all is. Hmm. And I know you are now of a family of six. You're the only person still alive. Your yes, I'm the past. only. I'm the youngest of. I'm the. You're the youngest, and I'm, I'm the I'm the only survivor of my generation and my family. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'm the youngest, and and I live still alive, and they're not. Yeah. Coming here in the car, I couldn't help but shake asking you that about and now in 2017 how do you grapple with that how do I grapple with being the only survivor of my generation and my family it has naturally fallen to be that it hasn't seemed uh, it's not that there isn't grief and sorrow at the death of my siblings when they happened one after another over many years. But, you know, I probably don't spend a lot of time thinking, oh my God, I'm going to die too. They all did and I will. Yeah, I do think that's the case as far as I know. But I'm not grappling. I feel like I'm not grappling. If I start to grapple, I'll probably know it. (laughs) (laughs) No grappling. (laughs) <laughs> You're laughing at me. <laughs> oh, Good. I'm laughing. No grapple. Well, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> mm. Do you not fear death? Do I not fear death? At the moment, it seems to me that I more fear illness, pain, incompetence, uh, you know, the kinds of, of uh, 
a prelude to death in many cases. And that, I remember a dear, dear friend and colleague from long ago, Harold Clerman. I remember Harold saying, I don't think I'm afraid of death, but I am afraid of being, you know, miserable and in pain. And Mm. that's probably how I feel about it. Well, that hasn't happened. Oh, I'm so blessed. Is yes, may that continue. May my health continue. You really, um, you mentioned something earlier when you were talking about being back in New York, and you said to Adam, I imagine Adam Kirsch or whoever else is booking your life right now. You said, uh, "I have scripts to read. <laughs> I have things to do," and. I remember uh, earlier this year, I did a podcast with Philip Baker Hall, who's around your age. Yes, yes. We did a little film together. He's lovely. You did? Yeah. He had a very similar approach to his day-to-day life, which is, yes, I am this old, but no, I'm not stopping anytime soon, and I have a lot more to read and go through. (laughs) Yeah. And... This is not a question, but this is more of a comment. I hope... (laughs) Uh, Sorry. This is embarrassing. Uh. Hmm. May you be well. Yeah. <laughs> I hope to be like that. <laughs> this is probably a verse for you. Oh, maybe for you. <sighs> no, I'm a crier. Are you a crier? Uh, <laughs> Sporadically. Mm. Good thing. In <laughs> mm. Ladybird. The best scene in the movie involves you, and it's a monologue you have about love and attention. It's only a few little lines. It's hardly a monologue, but yes, it's a lovely moment. It has the weight of one. Mm. And you say, essentially, that those things can be, or often are, synonymous. Do you feel loved? Yes. Do you feel loved? Sometimes. Which I guess is about as much as I can (laughs) ask for. Yes. Yeah. Your answer is much more uh, positive than mine. And I'm the younger person. Well, that figures, doesn't it? (laughs) You think so? See, I've had longer to accumulate love. Is that right? Sure, yeah. Oh. You felt it for a long time now. I started out feeling it. I think when we began this conversation, I spoke about my good fortune to have a, a stable family, which includes a loving family. That is part of stability, isn't it? Mm. I think so. I think so. I mean, you, you can come to it in other ways. I mean, 
that's how I began. Mm-hmm. You're not someone who uh, fears death, it seems, and we've had that. There's no grappling. I think I said no <laughs> grapple. You seem to like that line. I guess the last thing I want to ask you is um, what do you want with the rest of your life, however long that is? Mm. I guess to be present, connected, loving and loved, healthy, God willing. I hope for that. Lois Smith, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Special thanks this week to Emma Myers, Chris Wells, and Adam Kirsch for making this episode possible. If you happen to be in New York, Lois has a mini retrospective coming up at the Quad Cinema from December 12th to the 14th. They'll be screening East of Eden, Five Easy Pieces, Marjorie Prime. To learn more about Lois and this series, be sure to visit their website at www.quadcinema.com. To learn more about us, visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. We're coming up on the end of the year, and the best gift you could give any of us here on the show is a review on iTunes. No matter its length, quality, or humor, each review helps new listeners find the podcast. Speaking of, our executive producer is David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week with Sean Baker. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.